Ensure your next purchase is a real deal and shop authentic handbags, watches, sneakers, streetwear and jewellery from eBay, backed by Authenticity Guarantee. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello, you're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, poetry editor of the New Yorker magazine. Today we're talking about our newest poetry feature on newyorker.com. First Person is a sequence of poems that follows the musings and mishaps of a 21st century female character known simply as I. Here with me is the author of First Person, Eliza Griswold, a poet, journalist, and frequent contributor to The New Yorker, Eliza won the 2019 Pulitzer Prize in general nonfiction for her book Amity and Prosperity, One Family and the Fracturing of America. She's also received the J. Anthony Lucas Prize, a Penn Translation Prize, and the Rome Prize, among many, many other honors. Eliza, it's great to have you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us a little bit by the origins of this project. When and why did you begin writing the poems that became First Person? Uh, When did I begin? Probably almost a decade ago. Oh, wow. You know, I mean, this character emerged who wasn't the poet, right, as we're familiar with, right? (laughs) As we always say. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. But also I was almost past the experiences that the I had had. I mean, a lot of what the I, what I wrestles with ambition, motherhood, like wrestling with disparate identities. And some of that was happening at the time. A lot of it, in fact, in real time, like the towing of a car, which (laughs) happened again last week. So there was an experiential quality, but not necessarily an autobiographical one. There, it is totally autobiographical, but it's, it's only one of the many selves that we carry, right? And and I wanted to delineate that from the beginning because in a lot of ways, I, the self, like with a capital S, the watcher is not I, right? So I is out there fighting the good fight and often losing. Mm-hmm. But the wisdom of the poems hopefully is beyond the I, right? Right. So, it, but it's not really a persona because it's really me, you know? <laughs> well, I a persona can still be a mask. I mean, I, I was wondering about that when I was reading them because there's kind of a Whitman-esque quality to the poems, which is to say they're, it's called first person, but it's actually written in third person. The protagonist is named I, but it's a she. So it's sort of Whitman turned on his head. Um, this I is both self and other. But how did you think about that? I mean, were you self-aware, as it were, of this eye? Yes. I mean, the larger collection, what I hope the larger collection does is trace a reintegration of mm. disparate selves, right? Because over, I mean, the book, it was over a decade. It's probably like 12 years of poems, I right? See. And that, that traces my sort of transformation or my 
shift in life from being a conflict correspondent, single, abroad, to coming back and trying to wrestle with what it means to be an American woman at this time? And not just a woman, a mom, a wife, you know, a member of society that one is kind of that I felt she'd largely rejected, right? And then whammo, and mm. is implicated by, and is implicated by, because it's, right, there's no more kind of, oh, poo-poo America, it's behind us, the world is so much more interesting. It's like, oh, no, where's I's kid going to go to school? And, oh, I got the car towed again. And, you know, <laughs> God damn it, I didn't get her coffee, whatever it is, right? Yeah. And so, yeah. That's kind of it. So it's a modern Whitman in that way, or is it? Is it like would Whitman not recognize this eye? I don't think Whitman would recognize this eye at all because I mean, what it is also attempt is to be like rigorously honest. Yeah. Right. And I think I, that I can't get any more honest than this. Like you know, I is me, right? <laughs> me can't get more honest. This is what I can do on a page with really outing, like the the. I mean. In some ways, I is synonymous with the ego. You mean in general or in these poems? In these poems. Mm -hmm. In these poems, in some ways. Because I think we think of the I as the deepest self, especially the lyric I. Right. You know, and Whitman sort of uh, saying for his part, you know, I is everyone. Right. You know, and instead this is saying I is this really specific person experiencing these very specific uh, early 21st century problems. Yeah. You know, which I think... Whether it's being towed or, you know, uh, there's a, a moment where it's really thinking about gender, I think, a lot yeah. in interesting ways. Tell me about that, how how that's working. Well, I mean, first of all, I think these poems are embarrassing. Like when I started <laughs> writing them, I was like, I don't, I, a lot of the poems I write, I don't want to be writing them. But these in particular, right, which I wonder is maybe why I created this character, mm. right? She's wrestling with what it means to be a professional woman, you know, what it means to be, have a Fox News caster slip his number across the desk and be like, just call me, right? And a lot of what, for me, in my 40s, like I, as she says, I is premillennial, like I came of age as a woman in a different era, right? And so, so much of what made me, and in a professional setting as well, is not acceptable anymore, hmm. right? But I swallowed a lot of these things and wasn't particularly bothered by them and found another way to negotiate that world. And I feel like we we discredit women with this particular experience as somehow, you know, um, collaborators, right? Mm. But but the way that I got through a lot of that was to simply disregard the role of the body. I feel like we see this a lot with women in the poetry world, where like women are either like seeing ghosts in their closet or like they are arrested children, it's not easy to embody like I'm a matter-of-fact woman. Hmm. You know, there are other ways to negotiate these power structures by sort of avoiding that. And I think what I'm hoping to do in these poems is really challenge challenge some of the Me Too, like you guys are collaborators, you went along with all this on one side, and also challenge like, no, this is a, this is a full-blooded woman in a poem right? Trying to na- navigate what does it mean to be a mom and all that stuff. How does a poem do that? I mean, you know, that's a that's a big ask for a poem. And I think in many ways, one of the ways the poem uh, that you've written has achieved that is, is through series. Mm-hmm. So that we get a, a kind of kaleidoscopic view of I. Were there other models that came to you? Were you just, you know, trying to write through 
these decade and more, these sort of uh, dozen years of, of thinking through these kinds of questions. Because what I also love about them is they aren't freighted with all of that, yet they really address all these kinds of questions. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that, that the idea of this persona allows. First of all, I hope they're funny. And that... and. You know, humor, I think, allows us so much latitude because if they were harangy or finger pointy or like, you know, polemics or screeds, I certainly that's not the kind of poetry I read. And and I don't I'm not often funny in poetry. I wish I were. I'm funnier aloud than I am on the page. <laughs> so that's one reason it's especially fun for me to ha- to do this with you, because I'm like, oh, they're funny. Right. Yeah. Um, so, OK, so creation of a persona, use of humor. I set out probably to write one or two of them. I see. And then I realized, oh my goodness, there's so many experiences and things like the like the one about being premillennial and the Fox News guy and you know board member asking my weight and comparing me to his labradoodle, you know, which happened last year. Right? Oh man. <laughs> right? Wow. Right? And it was a little bit of a job interview, so like what do you do, you know? And and wow. so anyway, all of that stuff, right? Like what do you what do you roll with as a human being? Sure. You know? Well, and I think there's a for me, I was really struck by the way that I um, reminds me of a kind of almost surreal double that you see in other poems, people like John Berryman with Henry or, or Plas Lady Lazarus, yep. which, you know, is terrifying on the one hand, but I know that people who were close with her thought of, of, of those poems as kind of funny or, or absurd, you know, and yeah. big huh. in, in this way. Yeah. I mean, definitely the Berryman is an explicit, like I was reading the Berryman, yeah. but, but in ways we've moved beyond the Berryman, right? Yeah. Like in ways we don't, so I was worried in these poems to make sure that I was far enough away from that space. Right. From which part of Berryman? Because there's many Berrymans, uh, with, even within the dream songs, sort of on purpose, right? I think so. I mean, moving away from the sort of pigeon voice, mm. right? Yeah. That the would... blackface, you know, not the easiest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how <laughs> I mean, you... I've written about Berryman much, so yeah. uh, I've thought about him a lot. But yeah. He does have this kind of self-awareness about his problems, let's call them, or Henry's problems. About Henry's problems, right. And I think what I really look to, I mean, not when I read poetry so much, but definitely when I write it, it's it's self-awareness. Like I'm looking to be as honest on that page as I can be, which I don't even know is necessarily, it's not confessional per se, um, but it's like putting the self under scrutiny and finding, you know, finding the contradictions that the self lives, that the, you know, really exploring what what sort of appeasement do I make to be in this world in this way? And tell me about what do you see the difference between honesty and confessionalism? Oh, see? Okay, so now again, we're like this, we're in a generational lens, right? Yeah. So I grew up in an age of poetry where confessional was an insult. It was mm. often a tacit insult, but really? that's what it was. Yes. Oh, confessional? That's not. Do, yeah. I wouldn't write, con- you know. Yeah, it's supposed to be more transformed. Exactly. Exactly. Confessional is kind of like JV poetry, right? So, it's like your diary. Totally. Read, read exactly. Aloud. Exactly. Like, don't you have anything else to write about, yeah, you know? Yeah. Well, certainly there is a, you know, corresponding rise of the memoir or, you know, uh, that gets seen as sort of lesser than nonfiction, you know? Oh, absolutely. That can sort of happen. 
But, you know, the, our best writer is James Baldwin. Yeah. Uh, you know, we could stop there. Yeah. Ja- you know, yeah. James Baldwin, he's, he's writing through the self to talk about, like Whitman, these broader concerns. Yeah. You know, in America, a, uh, a world that, you know, may disregard him. And by claiming this eye, he's standing tall. Uh, yeah. And in a way that's really interesting. And I also think of someone like uh, Lucille Clifton, who I think of often, yeah. who's, who's writing poems that I wouldn't call confessional. No. But they are very much thinking of this I in large and in literally lowercase yeah. Uh, ways. Yeah. I think that's absolutely true. But I think in the sort of among contemporaries, more even than looking for models, you know, among contemporaries and – I, I definitely came of age, and not just in poetry, right, in journalism as well, to fear the vertical pronoun. The vertical pronoun is lazy. That's kind of the school of thinking from which I came, right? How can you go beyond this? And I know, I, I know, so this is actually a way to reclaim that, I think, in a way that's tolerable to my ego, but also owns this idea of fracture and hopefully, hopefully, the conscious mechanics of this mm. in the book itself are that hopefully at the end the eye is integrated, right? Like the ego has been whacked enough times that it kind of gives up, right? And I think that is part of – there's a lot of adolescent rebellion in these poems. There's a lot of foot stamping and that is definitely still part of me, right? But there's also – kind of a surrender into something larger. I mean, a lot of them, you know, to be honest, a lot of these eye poems also deal with addiction, Mm. which is something else that I don't talk a great deal about because a lot of people do, you know. Um, But a lot of what this eye is doing is medicating of self with small s and then giving that up, right, and dealing with what kind of rage and problems come up after that. Wow, that's very intense. (laughs) I mean, and I think what I like about it is how uh, you say it's whacking over the head, but it's more doing it through form, through shifts in tone, uh, sometimes through slapstick. But at the same time, there there's a kind of sticking of the landing that the poem is interested in. Um, I'm curious about your, your thinking of form, especially coming from journalism. And I want to talk a little bit in a minute more about sort of your journalism background. But tell us more about like what you were thinking about in terms of form. Form. I mean, if I... I try not to think all that much about form consciously because it actually impedes the work. You know, I'm not great with form. And if I'm thinking too much about it, it's going to it's gonna sound that way on the page. I think if I think about the most authentic experience of form for me, you know, I grew up it, like learning to read, right, from a pulpit in a church, like playing in the church where my dad was a priest, right, oh, wow. literally flipping the pages of the Bible and and reading Psalms and other passages. And when I think about that meter and form, um, I think about probably Dickinson. I think that's probably the closest. And, you know, it feels kind of grandiose to even say that, but that's the kind of short, heavily rhythmic, but often... I like to enjam the expected line endings that I think sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's awkward, but sometimes I want it to be awkward. Sure. You know, um, it's not really it's it's trying to it's trying to get beneath the expected idea. And the best way I know to do that is to break the line right in unexpected ways and that are sometimes successful and sometimes not. 
Well, it also, uh, I'm glad you brought her up because she's another 19th century <laughs> giant, of course, but also someone who's thinking about the self in a very different way. Yeah. The self as a society, but also a society of one that I think this eye is kind of circling. I absolutely think so, right? I absolutely think, I mean, I grew up with Dickinson's poems on my wall, you know, I mean, this, and a lot of, so I, I think as a poet sometimes or as a human, like I'm, a, I'm sort of knee-jerk anti-intellectual. Like I will naturally respond against what I think is going to sound bloviated or learned, do you know? But I think these early influences of poetry and some, right, were pretty – and you and I have talked about this a little bit before with the, with the blues and with the Afghan poems. Like the – intonations, which I really think are incantatory, of folk singing. I don't know that I naturally possess that, but that's what moves me. That The idea of poetry as ceremony, right, of really trying to invoke another register, um, that, I, that I really go for. Well, that's really powerful. How, <laughs> you put it well, but um, I too think that, you know, that ceremonial ritual part of poetry, which goes to form, but also to song. And as you say, psalm, I think that's really important. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. With access to so much information, it's hard to feel like an informed, discerning citizen. That's why on Make Me Smart, which is a podcast from Marketplace, we make it easy for you to stay in the know. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdahl. Every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I unpack the latest from Washington, D.C. Uh, the Senate Minority Leader has announced that he will step down as the Republican leader. What's happening in AI? Uh, I mean, don't buy at the top, but holy cow, artificial intelligence and all the companies related to it are the, the hot new thing. And we do the numbers. So as a refresher, inflation is the rate of increase in the prices of things. It's not just sort of things getting more expensive. It's the speed at which things get more expensive. Because in a world that's constantly changing, we all need to stay smart. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Well, tell us a little bit more about the Afghan poems. Uh, you translated and written of land days from contemporary Afghanistan in a book called I Am the Beggar of the World. So you gathered those uh, from how? Tell us about that process. All right. So as a journalist, I've worked in Afghanistan and Pakistan since October 2001, like many of my colleagues. Um, and over time, I started to – once when I was – I'm just trying to think how to do this well. So I came across this story about young women who were being – one young woman who actually her family had killed her for not she for not being allowed to write poetry, right? Wait, 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 back up. She wasn't allowed to write poetry, and she wrote it and got killed. That's what I understood at first. And the way that this story came to me was that she was the member of a secret literary society in Afghanistan called Mirman Bahir, and they operate openly in Kabul. Every Friday they meet, they have poetry readings or lectures, but they operate secretly in Afghanistan's 34 provinces. Like, 
they'll have a member from Kabul go on the radio and be like, hey, here's our poetry. They literally have a poetry hotline number, right? And young girls, many who cannot go to school, who aren't allowed, will call in and read their poems, right? It's pretty amazing. So this one had been one of their members. And I wanted to write about them. But I also wanted to write about them because the one poem that survived this young woman was a land day. It was this two-line, uh, 22-syllable form that's a folk form passed, you know, mouth-to-mouth, ear-to-ear over millennia. Uh, it's They were traded, and they still are, around fires, but more often like at weddings. It's a rural tradition. And we've talked about a little bit. They, they function a little bit like rap music where you, like, swap out one word that, like— First, they were about British soldiers being terrible. Then they were about Russian soldiers, and now they're about Americans. And the word for American is ingrazi, which is the same as British, right? So anyway, so just amazing poems. And when I went to Afghanistan to track down this young woman, track down her story, what I found is she had actually set fire to herself, which is quite common in Afghanistan, um, because her parents had heard her reading the poems over the phone and they thought she was reading to a boy, right? It just really, I mean, just an unbelievable story. So working with these women, we, I was with a wonderful photographer, Seamus Murphy, who I work with a lot. Um, and we discovered how relevant these poems, they are so sexy and funny. They're so subversive, right? I mean, my favorite one says, you know, when sisters sit together, they're always praising their brothers. When sisters sit together, they're always praising their brothers. When brothers sit together, they're selling their sisters to others, right? I mean, at some of my, I can't even say on the radio, they're so dirty, right? <laughs> and you hear these whispered under burqas. And what they do is completely confound any facile notion of an Afghan woman as a mute blue ghost, right? Which I myself have been, like, over a decade, been like, I understand the nature of her subjugation better than she understands it. Wow. Nonsense. Right, right. And they're uttering and creating poems for millennia that resist any easy notion. About the size of their husband's manhood. I mean, literally, man, they will take it down, you know? <laughs> yeah. So it's it's pretty amazing. And so in the book itself, you translated and gathered them? Yep. So I went, you know, because Afghanistan is familiar to me, you know, I went a couple of times and I wasn't quite sure how to do it because it's a rural tradition. And the ones I wanted to hear most were the ones I wanted to trace how the American occupation had really impacted culture, right? So this is one lens through which to do that. Because they sing about bipilot, which means uh, a plane without a pilot, B is without a pilot, um, which is a drone. So Seamus and I started by going to refugee camps around the capital Kabul because that was a safe way to access rural people. And then little by little, we, we went more into the countryside, into active war zones to get them. And that was really humbling and freaking amazing, you know, to hear women saying, this is what I saw yesterday. You know, my son was – and the Taliban uses them sometimes. I mean, they are uses really – Uses the form. Uses the form mm. um, to, you know, to like – at that point, they were talking about Bush and Obama, Obama, right? And I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, they're really- and all that's captured in the book? It is indeed. It's all <laughs> in the book. Yeah, it's all in the book. How great. Yeah. And do you feel like that 
influenced your poetry? And, and Yes. How? Okay. So it influenced my poetry because it's a folk form and it is so free and it is so honest. And it helped me get over some of my inherited, like, not scholarly so much, but sort of hierarchical notions that poetry should be a certain way. It's sure. like, no, and the audacity to translate them. Do you know, yeah. I don't speak Pashto. I can, there are about nine words, so, and I can read Arabic, so, and they use Arabic characters. So by the end of doing the translation, I could be like, oh, this says moon, June, my darling. And that's all it says, right? So talking to different young women about like, this is how I would translate it. Like it just was a kind of a freedom. It was a process, it sounds. Yeah. And, and a collaborative one, you feel? Totally collaborative. And, you know, it's a lot about the condition of women in Afghanistan. The, po- the poems are. That's what they're singing sure. about. But my two of my translators, my first translator was a young woman who died uh, in the course of the reporting of a heart condition. Um, and then my second translator, uh, she received a death sentence, not a threat, but a death sentence from the Taliban that said she'd worked with Americans for a long time. And it said, we know what you're doing. We have already dispatched the assassin. He's sanctioned by Islamic law. So there's no it's not it's done deal. Right. Um, So to see how there was no woman immune from the forces of I mean, it's such a limited word because the violence associated with the way patriarchy works there. But it's so much more than that. And do you feel like we've just passed the anniversary of 9-11 and some of these things are in the air? How do you do you go back? I don't go back. I haven't been back. So, you know, I think with 9-11, you know, I was here on that day. And two weeks later, I was in Pakistan. With, so you were here in New York. I was here in New York. I had just become a freelance reporter. I'd done my first story for the London Sunday Times. When I found out what had happened around 9.30 that morning, you know, maybe a little earlier, I called the London Sunday Times and asked if they needed a stringer here in New York. And they did. They sent me down there. And two weeks later, they sent me to Pakistan. Wow. Right? And that's part of a whole generation who has a similar story. Right, right. Right? What I hope that we always understand when I hear people talking about the horrors of 9-11, which are egregious and and we must understand and honor the great sacrifices of people who live through them to not understand the the depth of the violence and conflagration that we have perpetrated on the world in the name of that event um, over the past 15 years I don't think we can mention one without the other in the same breath and so um, this leads to a, a question that's comes from that, which is just how do you think your journalism affects your poetry? I mean, did you think until that moment of yourself as a poet and then you're off on the other side of the world and you're like, wait, I'm a journalist? And was that in conflict with the poetry? And more importantly, how did it influence? Um, Yeah, I mean, that is exactly what happened. I mean, I was writing poems. I had worked at the Paris Review and um, then a friend of mine had a job at Condé Nast, and she was like, I need to hire the next person. I worked there for six months, and then I was like, I'm going to go try and be a journalist. So when I first went over to Afghanistan and Pakistan, like I had written a couple of articles. I'd, I'd written almost nothing, right? When I first became a reporter, I was already a poet. And I was like, how am I going to feed myself, right? <laughs> and I did see this this right. model. You know, it was a different era of journalism, right? So people were traveling around the world like, 
you know, Sebastian Younger would go write about blood diamonds in Sierra Leone, you know, and I was working at Vanity Fair and I was like, that's a viable, yeah, there's I can do that. Yeah, glamour and you get a little money and your, your picture's in the paper. Like somebody's paying for your ice cream. That looks like it's for me. So yeah. I set out to, to do that kind of human rights, social justice type reporting in 2000, early 2001. And then bam, it was 9-11. And, and that set me out on this whole other journey as a correspondent. And, and, and there are many people, as we've talked about, who did the same thing. So what has happened for me with the poems is that they have become spaces. The, my first book of poems was very, like directly related to the journalism in ways that made me uncomfortable, but also allowed me space as a poet that nobody else, like that Mark Strand thing about you better lead an interesting life. I was like, beat this mark. Like, you know, like, so it allowed me a landscape that there was no one else who was going to write poems. Of course there were, right? And there were soldiers and all kinds of people yeah, doing great sure. work. But at that point it was like, okay, what does it mean? For to, you, that for was me. The, the moment that let you write about something beyond what... Exactly. And it allowed me imagine the authority to write those poems, right? And then they became spaces where what doesn't belong on a page of journalism, but much of the issues in the journalism, like this is the moral conundrum here that can never be solved, that became the space of poetry. That sounds uh, amazing. Oh, please. <laughs> it does. I mean, I think that's where poetry can do it in less words and then, you know, with a song in its step, you know. That's, yes. There's a way that, you know, these things aren't anti each other, but they, I think, can go hand in hand. And what you're saying, I think, is both in the land days and in your own work, there's a way, there's this space that it creates that isn't uh, always available in other forms or places. I think that's absolutely right. So I want to think about the difference between journalism and nonfiction for a moment. Okay. This is a poetry podcast, but okay. we'll, we'll allow ourselves, um, uh, having written nonfiction myself, and, you know, poets, I think, write the most nonfiction. Yeah. But, you know, what, what is there a difference for you uh, when you in you know, your latest book, which did so well? And congratulations. Uh, thank you. Um, okay. So I think being a poet taught me how to look very closely, that there was like an absolute benefit in looking very, very closely. I think also the economy of words and that nothing was sacrosanct. Breaking the frame of what was traditional reportage or whatever could be done all the time. And also making clear to a reader the ethical questions that arise all the time as a, as a human in the act of writing about other humans. All, I think poetry gave me the feeling that I could do all of that, you know? Does yeah. that make sense? In Amity and Prosperity, it was immersive. You know, tell it me. was like put a bullet in my head, immersive, okay? It was seven years of going to these two towns in Appalachia repeatedly during which – so I went there and then I went to Afghanistan. I was going between there and Afghanistan to do this land aid mm. book, right? Um and I spent year after year with this remarkable family and some of their neighbors who let me witness every aspect of their life coming up against the oil and gas industry. And they didn't know none of I mean, when I started reporting it, they really didn't know what was wrong. And and it was a leap of faith because I didn't either. Like I was like, what if this is Munchausen's? Like, what if they 
what if we don't know exactly what's going on? And what happened over time is the different experts came along to help them and were able to explain not only to them, but to me, um, in very clear, concrete terms, what was going on with these people. So it unfolds in real time. And a bit, unfortunately, like it's like a horror story. You know, like first you have goats aborting fetuses. Then you have horses and dogs dying. And then you have these mysterious illnesses. And then you have the smells and the water going black. And I think in many, but it's really about people. You know, it's really about how rural Americans have paid for the energy appetites of urban Americans for a century. And we don't even think about it. Did any of that make its way into poems? Yes, because the Washington Post magazine asked me to write a poem form of the book at one point, And so I did. At one point, I was so frustrated with the reporting and so uncertain that I was like, I'm going to just write a collection of poems. No editor was excited to hear that. <laughs> they didn't want those. <laughs> Shockingly, they did not want environmental illness related poetry instead of the book they'd already paid for. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Well, this brings me to your forthcoming poetry book. Um, so first person appears in a poetry book called If Men, Then, which, you know, uh, if we were writing it out, it would say If Men, comma, Then, um, which will be published early next year. Can you tell us anything about how these poems sit in that larger effort? I tried to do everything with first person. I put one every few pages. Sure. You know, I put them. I knew they weren't the end because... If this were the end, poor I, right? Like, hopefully she has a better fate than she ends up in this section, right? I am sorry. <laughs> exactly. I am sorry. I would be still at the impoundment, right? <laughs> so they sit um, as a discrete section in the book. And the concerns of the larger project, I hope, arc through, a re- as I said, a reintegration of this I with some humor and some deference and the admission that 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 rabid, ambitious I is still around, right? That's part of it. Like, can we really, I can't subsume that part of myself. I can't erase that part of myself, but I can attempt to integrate that part of myself. The concerns of the book without knowing, you know, If Men Then comes from a poem that's written in direct response to Stephen's Magnifico poem, metaphor. Wally Stevens. Wall, Wally, (laughs) Walita. Because he has this line where he's like, 20 men crossing a bridge, you know, is prelude to a metaphor, right? I think I might have gotten that wrong. Okay, but it's like that. 20 men crossing a bridge, yeah. right? And it for a woman, 20 men crossing a bridge into a village, especially for one who's like re- reported on massacres, that ain't no metaphor. Sure. That's a massacre, sure. right? It, so, and it's real. It's not uh, imagined. Exactly. So I think in some ways taking on that poem and taking on like the the – the legacy of violence, but also womanhood, I think. I, I'm cautious about writing these things at this time because there's so much in the air, and and that makes me, you know, cautious about writing them. But but that's just what came out when I sat down. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to see the whole, and we're really excited to have this as one of our feature poems, so thank you so much. I am so excited. I can't even tell you. It's really, it's so much fun. Eliza, thank you for being our feature poet. You can read, listen to, and interact with First Person on NewYorker.com. And you can also find Eliza Griswold's poem, Toad, in the September 23, 2019 issue of The New Yorker. 
Eliza Griswold's latest poetry collection, If Men Then, is forthcoming in February 2020. Thanks for being here, Eliza. Thanks for having me, Kevin. You may subscribe to this podcast, The Fiction Podcast, The Writer's Voice Podcast, and The Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Corner by Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and Rope-A-Dope. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff with help from Hannah Eisenman. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> Thank you.